Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, friends, we are looking at this one verse uh, this morning, and my subject is uh, Gospel Morning. Uh, we're continuing our studies, uh, which we've begun just a couple of weeks ago, in this uh, Sermon on the Mount. The Lord has uh, ascended up uh, the mountain, and uh, His disciples have followed Him. Thousands of people have followed Him, and uh, He's preaching uh, initially, it seems, or His attention is focused on the disciples, but uh, everyone can hear, and everyone is meant to hear what He is saying uh, to them. And last week, uh, we focus really in that first uh, beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The realization that man uh, before God is spiritually empty. Uh, he has nothing that can commend him to God. And this is the starting point in his Christian journey, his spiritual journey. The realization that he is nothing before God and that Christ is uh, who he needs. He has nothing to recommend himself before the Lord. And the believer is one who has realized this and he is continuing to realize this, that he is not as important as he thought he was in his unconverted days. He's, he's being emptied of his self-reliance. He's been emptied continually of his boasting. This is all part of his sanctification. Rather than just a one-off event, it's an ongoing part uh, throughout his Christian life. And not only being emptied, but being filled, uh, as we said last week, as he trusts in Christ and trusts in him alone for acceptance. He doesn't deny his gifts. He doesn't say, I'm not able to do something that he is able to do, that would be a false kind of humility. That would be a denial of what God has given to him. But he doesn't rely on those things when it comes to acceptance before God. That's the point. And uh, all his hope in that matter of acceptance and uh, entrance into heaven and the forgiveness of all his sins, all of that all my hope on Christ is founded, is what he says. Well, today, friends, we're looking and thinking about this next uh, beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's connected with the first one, with being poor in spirit. It follows quite nicely uh, on from it. The one who realizes that he is spiritually impoverished, he's going to moan over it. He's going to be aggrieved uh, on that discovery that he hasn't anything. The, the beggar he, uh, on the streets who doesn't have anything, well, he mourns his penniless uh, position. That person who checks their bank account and realizes he has nothing in his bank account or realizes that he's in the red, well, he's not full of joy. He mourns over that situation. It grieves him to see that he's in that kind of a position and state. And so also with one who discovers that he has nothing to offer to God. He's deeply affected by it and uh, uh, led 
to grieve over it. So blessed are they that mourn. Well, once again, we have to say, this is not the world's philosophy. This is not how the world thinks. To the world, blessed are the happy. Blessed are the trouble-free people. Blessed are the people who are happy every day. Blessed are the pain-free, the world says. Blessed are those who have everything uh, good happening to them, who have no worries, is the way the world says. You know, that old uh, World War I song, pack up your troubles in an old kit bag, and what? Smile, smile, smile. That's what uh, sometimes people feel, people's philosophy in the world is like. Just smile. That's what we see. That's what we're after. It's just happiness. To mourn, to grieve, to be sad. Well, the world uh, does its very best, as much as it can, to avoid uh, these kind of things. They, they don't want to face things which are uh, grievous and mournful. And naturally, none of us want to do that. You see even how the world these days is change, changing funeral services. Funeral services are not really funeral services in many cases. They've become celebrations of a life. That's what it is. We don't want this, this, uh, this uh, old type of funeral service, this traditional type, you know, that, that reminds us that life is short. We don't want to be reminded of that. We remind us that the, the wages of sin is death. In the day that you sin, you will die, God said. Death is not a natural occurrence. It doesn't just happen as a part of nature, uh, sorting itself out, clearing itself out, removing the old, bringing in the new. That's not what death is. Death is the result of God's judgment. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, that's when death came into the world. And that's what a funeral is meant to remind us of when we attend one. Or uh, even the day of judgment. After death comes the judgment, the Bible says. And we don't want to be reminded of these things. So we, perhaps we, we avoid funerals altogether. Or we, we rather change the funeral service so it becomes a celebration instead so that these things are not in our minds. You may have caught the, the funeral service of a very famous uh, writer, sing, uh, a songwriter, an Irish songwriter, just last month. Uh, I think he died last month or November, but his service was last month. And uh, what was said about his service? Well, he got a rousing send-off and a rollicking celebration. This is what was written about uh, his particular uh, uh, service. Dancing and singing, uh, smiles were all around. People had their mobile phones out, taking videos of what was people dancing in, at the front and in the aisles. And everyone, uh, people said, oh, the deceased person, uh, he would have enjoyed that. <laughs> that's, that's what it's become. We don't want all this mourning stuff. We want just to be uh, even uh, happy all the time. We want good things only. Uh, so that's the world. But we have to say, friends, also, it's not just the world who tries to avoid mourning. It's also happening in the church. How many sermons do you hear along these lines? Blessed are they that mourn. I probably can count them on one hand, uh, the number of times you've heard such sermons. How many preachers today will stand up and, uh, and preach, as they've always done, 
a happy message, a message that will tickle people's ears, a message that will entertain people, uh, that, a message that will make people to smile. And people will leave the service saying, oh, I enjoyed that, I liked that, I, that, was, that, was, that was a good message. But it was only a message that uh, tickled them rather than addressed particular things in their lives. Perhaps some here may be saying that. Perhaps some friends here may be saying, oh, pastor, you're not going to preach to us again about sin. You're not going to tell us again how bad we are. You did that last week. Can you tell us something different? Can you tell, talk about something more pleasant? Can you tell us something to make us laugh? Oh, can you tell us something to tickle us, to amuse us, to entertain us? That's what we want, perhaps? No, friends, I hope not. You know, that's the kind of, uh, that's how people treated Ezekiel's preaching. Ezekiel, uh, the Lord said to him, uh, Lo, thou art unto them, the people, his listeners, as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do not do them. That's all Ezekiel, while the prophet was to his listeners, an entertainer, a one who did something that just entertained. They'd like to hear it, but they didn't want to do it. Now, friends, when having said these things, we, the preacher mustn't be one-dimensional a preacher. He mustn't be only blessed are they that mourn. He mustn't only talk about sin and judgment. He also has to be balanced. He has to talk about the good news. He has to talk about grace. He has to talk about the love of Christ. We sang about it just now, the love of Christ, how he came down from heaven and gave his life for sinners. This is, this is grace. This is good news. And if we, we as preachers have to emphasize anything, it's this. Even more perhaps than sin and judgment, we want to focus on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. This is good news. We want people to be uh, taken up with this good news that there is a Savior for you as a sinner. And you can find peace with God. And you can find a right life with God, a, a relationship with God. And you can obtain heaven. And we want to emphasize these things uh, in the church. Oh, friends, this is uh, what we desire. In fact, we say uh, a preacher should pay attention to four particular areas in his preaching uh, ministry. He should uh, attend to four kinds of sermons, you could say. On the one hand, he, his sermons must be doctrinal, uh, teaching-wise, e exhorting, uh, building up the, the, the congregation. Then there must be, secondly, a gospel preaching, sermons which are specifically addressed to those uh, who are unbelievers and unconverted to win them to the Savior. Then there must be Christ-exalting sermons, sermons which lift up the Savior in the eyes of the people. And also there must be sermons of comfort, those which assure and help uh, believers in their walk with, uh, with the Lord. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. So friends, this is what he should be uh, paying attention to. But you'll notice that, uh, sadly, this, this aspect of uh, preaching uncomfortable things is missing from many pulpits today. 
And it's also perhaps affected our evangelism and the way the church evangelizes because there's an absence of this kind of teaching in modern day evangelism. Christ preaches, blessed are they that mourn. He began his ministry with repent and believe uh, the gospel. Repent and believe. Realize that you're, you're, you're sin. Realize that you've offended God. Realize that you're a rebel against uh, God, your creator, your provider, your God. This is nothing that you have to be proud of, he says to them, in effect. This is a shameful thing. This is an embarrassing thing. This is a, a, a warning, a, a warring rather, against the Lord. You're in a fight against God. You must throw away your weapons and you must come and surrender your life uh, to God. This is how the Lord began uh, his ministry. Turn from this way of living. Turn unto the Lord. Believe in me, the Lord says, and I will turn to you and I will bless you. And so he puts his finger on the, on the difficult points and he says some uncomfortable things in order to help the people to truly come to know the Lord. And that's what happens. The unconverted person in whom the Spirit of God is working, well, he acknowledges these things. Perhaps for a time he fights against it, but eventually he'll be brought to a point where he acknowledges these things and at the same time he grieves over his sin. He's deeply sorry about his sin. He's deeply regretful about the way that he has treated God. It gives him some sense of inner pain that he has been this way to God. It's then when he feels these things and he realizes these things that Christ draws near to him and comforts him and uh, re uh, reveals to him the way of salvation and, uh, and forgives him all his sins. This is the beginning, friends, of that spiritual journey to Christ. But much of evangelism today it presents a very different picture. And believers are, are brought to think, well, in order to win the world, I have to present to the world an, an image, a facade, as it were, of happiness. I must smile all the time. I must present to them, I'm a person who is strong. I'm a person who is able and capable. And the problems of the world don't affect me. It's not a real kind of Christianity. Oh, I must present to them that I have within me an exuberant joy, a brightness, a joviality about my life. I'm not saying we should all go around mourning. We are cheerful in the Lord. But sometimes our, our method of trying to win those who are outside of Christ might be along those lines where we think we have to put on a facade and, 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 and uh, just present an image of everything is joy and brightness about following the Lord. Look at me, we sort of say, there's no mourning in my life. There's no sadness, that no, there's no problems. I'm happy all the time. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus and it will be the same for you. But that's somewhat superficial, friends. That somewhat doesn't tally, isn't it, with real life, what it's all about. And sometimes the unbeliever can see uh, through that. But we want to present a proper image. So we have to say that the Christian life begins uh, here uh, with this poor feeling, that poverty in spirit, and that sense of mourning and grief uh, over our state and our sin. But it's, uh, it doesn't uh, stop there. 
that sense of sin remains with him throughout his life. That's, that sense of mourning, rather, remains, that feeling remains with him to a certain, uh, to the end of his life. The believer is a curious paradox. On the one hand, uh, he is uh, he's mourning, and on the other hand, he has joy. He has uh, trouble on the one hand, and uh, disturbed in himself, and yet he also has peace within himself. He has both going on at the same time, a mixture of these two. There's quietness that he obtains in his relationship with the Lord, and yet there are certain things in him which disquiet him and, uh, and trouble him. So he mourns on the one hand, and at the same time uh, he is uh, comforted. This is the believer uh, in this world. It's not only happiness, it's a mixture of the two. Why is the believer still mourning, you may ask? Why is it? If his sins are all washed away, if he is forgiven by God, and he is, and if he is accepted by God, and he is, if he is trusting in Christ, if he is going to heaven, well, why is he still grieving? Well, friends, there are a number of reasons why. He's not grieving first, though, because he's been deprived of certain things in life. His mourning is not really because he's been hurt, and he's been offended by other people. He's not mourning really because of some material loss that's happened in his life. Now, his mourning is somewhat deeper than that. We could say, firstly, the, the reason why a believer still mourns is because, <coughs> excuse me, is because sin is still with him. Indwelling sin is still indwelling. It hasn't gone away, even post-conversion. Since he has come to know the Lord, sin is still in him. The power of sin has been broken in his life. The guilt of sin has been removed. He has a, a conscience that doesn't uh, condemn him, and he's accepted by God. But sin, the presence of sin, is still there. And that presence of sin is going to, it dogs him every step of the way. Every time he wants to do something good, well, sin is there, trying to prevent him, trying to hinder him, hinder him in every step that he takes towards good and righteousness. Or spiritual, when he opens his Bible, what happens? Suddenly he feels sleepy. When he says, let me spend a few minutes in prayer, what happens? He, he, he gets down on his knees and his mind begins to wander to other things. And he cannot keep a hold on his uh, uh, communion with the Lord. And he has opportunity perhaps to witness at work and he holds back that, and he doesn't say anything. And he regrets uh, later on. He wants to do good. But then sin often comes in and troubles him and hinders him in it. But then also as believers, not only indwelling sin, but uh, actual sins are a trouble to him. And friends, uh, this is so important. As believers, we have to engage day by day in self-examination. Every day uh, we are sinning. Every day we have to confess our sins uh, to the Lord and obtain a fresh uh, pardon from Him. The old writers used to say, keep short accounts with God. Don't leave it for long to confess your sins. If we don't come before the Lord daily, to examine ourselves 
and to see where we have gone, gone wrong and to obtain that fresh pardon, well, our spiritual lives are bound to suffer. We will become colder in our love to the Lord. Our prayers perhaps may be wondering, why don't our prayers seem to go further than the ceiling? Prayers maybe will become formal uh, and uh, so different to what they were before. Perhaps the world will begin to gain more of an attraction to us. And the old sins may come back to haunt us and to trouble us again as they did in times past. If we neglect self-examination, friends, it will be detrimental uh, to our spiritual progress. Now, self-examination, we, we all know, is no easy task. It's not a very pleasant task to do, but it is necessary. It's something that we must engage in. You read the biographies of men and women who have advanced in the Lord and done great things for the Lord, and all of them engaged to some degree uh, in this, uh, this duty, this activity of self-examination. So, in our times when we are before the Lord, we have to go beyond the general, Lord, forgive me for my sins of today. We have to probe ourselves uh, with different uh, questions. Lord, what have I done? What have I said today that I ought not to have said? What have I thought about? What have I dwelt on in this past uh, uh, 24 hours? How have I treated other people? Have I been irritable? Have I been bad-tempered? Have I been proud? Have I been jealous? Have I been envious in some way? Oh, then I should confess these to the Lord. Have I failed to be what I ought to have been? Uh, the, the sins of uh, omission as well as of commission? Oh, friends, these are questions with which we need to probe ourselves day after day. You don't need to do it for long. In fact, I would say you mustn't do it for too long. Don't spend over much time. Some of the oldies really did spend probably a lot of time in self-examination. You don't want to be bogged down in self-examination, but neither must you neglect it. You'll be detrimental uh, to us. So for a short time, I look over those things and I feel again some sense of mourning, some sense of grief that I have treated the Lord. Oh, I know Him now. How much more aggravated my sins are that I've done these things. Oh, before I didn't know, but now I know, and yet I've still done these things and still behaved in this way. So for a short time, we feel these things and renew our repentance and renew our dedication to the Lord. This man is blessed. Christ says, blessed is this man who mourns even still over his sins. He shall be comforted. How shall he be comforted? With immediate forgiveness. He will hear those words, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every time we confess, every time the Lord immediately uh, forgives us. So friends, uh, this is so vital for us. Be careful though when you confess. May I say this? Certain sins, you need to just confess them very quickly. Don't dwell upon them. Don't linger upon them. They may do more harm uh, to mention or to think over much about them. So uh, don't neglect this, friends. But here's another area where the, which causes the believer distress, and that is the state of the church. 
He's not just looking within, but he looks without at the state of the church and what's happening. And when he surveys this, the scene of, uh, in the land where he is and sees the church in the state that it is, in this weak position uh, and in this seemingly powerless uh, position, that troubles him. That causes him some, ang some, some uh, anxiety that this is the state. The, the church of Jesus Christ is not powerful as perhaps it has been in other times. And we, he, he mourns that he lives in a day of small things, that the gospel is preached and yet many reject it, that tracts are given out in the hundreds and the thousands, and yet very few receive them into their hearts, into their minds, that doors are knocked upon, and very few come to the church as a result of these things. And it, it troubles him, it grieves him, all this unbelief, all this uh, un uncaring, indifferent feeling towards the gospel and towards the Savior. He looks at the church and he sees contemporary Christian music in almost uh, so many assemblies, and that troubles him. The world has come into the church, and people are happy for it to be so, and that's a, a concern. Where's biblical worship? It's gone out. Where's reverend worship? It's not there. How can it be, Lord? He cries uh, to the Lord. The world, the church is shaking hands with the world. The move, uh, there's a move away from preaching and biblical preaching. People want to be, as I said, entertained. There's a paucity in our days of gospel preaching. There's very few churches, sad to say, who are preaching those messages for the unconverted people to hear and be saved by. You can't count, count them. There are so few friends. We do not say this in a critical way. We wish every church was a gospel-preaching church. But it's not so. And it troubles us. And when we consider these things, we feel like Nehemiah, that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The house of God is left uh, unattended to. How can the believer be happy to the tilt? He can't. He can't when he takes a, an observance of all these things. It troubles him. It distresses him like Nehemiah. And he cries to God, uh, Lord, revive your work. But then he looks also further afield, uh, beyond the church to the state of the nation. And again, that's another area that disturbs him. When he sees the, the atheism that is rampant, the unbelief that is rampant, the indifference that is there on a grand scale, the, the prevalence of immorality and the growing trends of immorality. Well, this nation and other nations are coming up with things we've never heard of before. And we see the LGBTQ uh, plus and, uh, I don't know, XYZ, whatever they are, but they, they keep coming up with all these new things. And you wonder, where's that? I've never heard of that. You've heard recently of... Perhaps you've read of a four-year-old uh, boy uh, who, who transitioned to a girl and was accepted by a Church of England school as a girl. And uh, all sorts of things uh, happening uh, along these kind of lines. And it's worrying, isn't it? It's sad. I'm sorry to be a bearer of such bad news, but I'm sure you know these things. But I just mentioned them because to show to you that this is uh, how, uh, how we feel. This, uh, we, we wonder, isn't it, when we see all these things, has God given up on our nation? Has He? And we see such 
uh, turning away from him. As God said, enough is enough with England, with the United Kingdom. They've had the gospel. That's it. I take my hand up. I give them up to their own lusts as that's what they want. They want nothing to do with me. The love of pleasure more than the lovers of God. That's it. That's putting the finger on our nation. That's what we're like. Oh, friends, if the Spirit of God dwells in me, then these things are bound to trouble me. They're bound, I'm bound to be affected by them. If they don't, if, they are, if I can take them or leave them, there's something wrong with me. Either I'm not really there as a believer, or I've backslidden from the Lord, but a true believer, he will feel these things to some measure. He will be discomforted. He will ache in his heart, in his soul, uh, when he sees these things. Because that's what the Spirit of God does in us who are believers. Listen to David. Rivers of tears run down mine eyes. Why, David? Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? Because they keep not thy law. Psalm 119, verse 136. Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, there he was. Lot, what are you doing there? How do you feel living there? I'm vexed. I'm vexed. I'm troubled. I'm disturbed. Why? Because of all the filthy conversation I'm hearing about me. Christ grieved, grieved when? And he saw the hardness of heart of those uh, Pharisees even, and the, the, the priests and the, pub, uh, the priests and the scribes. He was grieved in his heart. And we read even in our reading in Luke's Gospel, uh, he, he wept over Jerusalem. When he said, I, I would have gathered you as, as a hand ga- gathers her chick, chicks, but you would not. And he, he wept when he saw the, the judgment and the destruction that was going to fall upon Israel, upon Jerusalem in AD 70. He knew all that was happening and it caused him to grieve over these things. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wasn't just a happy-go-lucky person, smiling all the time. He was acquainted with these things. He saw these things and he was... Grieved. I don't know if it's true, but some people say uh, Christ never laughed. <laughs> he never laughed. Is it true? Uh, some people say he laughed so much that, uh, that it's never recorded. It was such a normal thing to him. And others would say, well, it's never recorded. He never laughed. Well, friends, blessed are they that mourn. But it, it doesn't stop there. For they shall be comforted. They and they only shall be comforted. Mourning leads to blessing. The word comfort here means to draw near, uh, to draw near and encourage somebody, to draw near to somebody and counsel them, to help them. And this is, is telling us that those who mourn in this way, God will draw near to them and God will bless them. <laughs> Jeremiah 31 verse 18, the Lord says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. That's an inc- a comfort, isn't it? Just to know that God has heard our mourning and our bemoaning, whether it's our- ourselves or the state that we find the church or the nation in. But there is comfort, friends, in this. And I'll just give you a few, few ways before we close. Comfort 
if we are, are those who mourn in this way, we're blessed because we know that uh, in our mourning we are like the Savior. We resemble the Savior in some way. Just as he felt those things and was grieved by those things, and he was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as he wept over Jerusalem, if we have some similar feelings, we are like him. We resemble him. That's a comfort, isn't it? And then if we confess our sins, we've said already, there will be that immediate forgiveness granted to us. The Lord will not keep us waiting, whether we're seeking Him as for the very first time or we're seeking Him uh, even as believers day by day for forgiveness. But comfort can also come to us in another way, and that's by making us instrumental and useful. Nehemiah, when he saw the walls of Jerusalem broken down and there was no protection for the city, he was far away. He was in Babylon. He was concerned about that situation. And he wept over it and he prayed and he fasted to God. He was so troubled by that. And what happened? God selected him and chose him to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. God used him. Before he had that measure of instrumentality, he felt he was concerned for the work that was going on there. And God may use you, in a sense, He may comfort you in a particular situation that you are worried about by making you the instrumental person to reach and to bring some kind of resolution to that problem or that issue. For example, perhaps you're a, you're a person who is concerned for young people. Perhaps you're a person who is concerned to see this younger generation, the young adults of our day, the university kind of students, and you feel for them, and, and you're praying for them, and you, you see that they're going through life without a guide, and they're being easily led astray, and day by day, you're mourning of them, and you're, you're crying to God, Lord, save these people. Well, maybe the Lord will use you to reach those, those people that you're praying for. Maybe you have a particular concern and burden uh, for the young people, the, the, the very children who are growing up in our land, and you, you feel for them, you think they're growing up without being in homes where they can study the Bible and read the Bible and pray together in non-Christian families. They go to school, they don't hear these things. Lord, have mercy upon them. Maybe the Lord will ask you to be a Sunday school teacher or to help out in that work. You see, and then you will find comfort that you are doing something uh, in, uh, to help out, to alleviate that situation. Comfort also, friends, uh, in part, uh, when we're working for the Lord in souls who are saved, in people who, are, who change, in some way or other, the Lord will comfort us. When we look at this world that we live in and we see that not everyone calls upon our Savior, not every knee bows to before Him, but the Lord comforts us by saying, it will not always be so. It will not always be like this, where people are rejecting Him. There is a time coming when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, where everyone in that place will love Him, everyone will bow before Him, everyone will serve Him, everyone will reverence His name, everyone will live together in peace with one another. That time is coming. What a comfort to us who mourn now. And it will be so much appreciated 
in, uh, as if we are mourners here. Comfort then, of course, to the full in heaven, isn't it? No more tears there. Now we mourn there, no more tears. There, God shall wipe away our tears uh, from us. There, only comfort. There, a fullness of joy. There, a fullness of happiness. Can't imagine it, really. Imagine, no more troubles, no more, no more pains, nothing to ache us, nothing to disturb our rest and our peace. Joy and joy everlasting. The comfort of all comforts from the God of all comfort. This is what's the ultimate comfort reserved for all who trust in Christ and who believe in him, turn to him. Oh, friends, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's close by singing our final hymn, number 456. I want a principle within 456. Thank you.